0: All right, this evening we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 39. And let's begin by following along as I read the text. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now Lord, thou dost let thy bond servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Panuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Jesus to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Now, a few narrative items to consider as we... Reflect upon this pericope. You'll notice that uh, we begin with a narrative setting in verse 22, which is in what place? Anyone? It is in Jerusalem. And specifically, where in Jerusalem? In the temple, correct. So, we have a location which is different from the previous pericope, namely the location at Bethlehem. Here the family is in Jerusalem and particularly in the temple there. Now we have had this setting before in this gospel. Do you remember where we have been before in this same setting and location even? In Zechariah, yes, in chapter 1, the annunciation by the angel to Zechariah that Elizabeth would have a child miraculously conceived in her old age. Chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, Zechariah is in the temple in Jerusalem, even as in this chapter the family of Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. All right, now, we have beginning similarities of location and specific place in location at the beginning of the gospel. Now, let's take a look at the end of the gospel. Where does Luke's gospel end? No, if you take a look at the very last two verses... Of the gospel. Chapter
1: 24.
0: They are in the temple. Where? In Jerusalem. Verse 52. They are in Jerusalem and they are in the temple, praising God continually. Very interesting that at the place where this gospel begins, in the temple in Jerusalem, it's the place where this gospel ends, Now, there's one other narrative setting which is interesting to note. It's that which precedes the narrative of the disciples going to the temple in Jerusalem at the very end of Luke 24. What is the other interesting narrative at the end of the gospel in Luke 24? And where where does it occur? Before Bethany, verse
1: thirteen,
0: on the road to Emmaus, the very famous exchange between Jesus and his disciples on the road to Emmaus, in which he discusses with them how it was, pre- it was predicted and was written of him in the law and the prophets and the writings that he would fulfill the scriptures of the Jewish Old Testament. All right, this is a very important narrative, but here, for our purposes, we want to think about where it occurs. Well, we're told that it occurs in Emmaus, and if you look at your map that's attached to your handout, you'll notice that Emmaus is west of Jerusalem with a little question mark under it. Map 266 in the Carta Bible Atlas, the question mark underneath the star is an indication that there is a question about the location of Emmaus. Now, if you notice verse 13 of 24, <clears throat> the text says that Emmaus was about seven miles or 60 stadia west of, from Jerusalem. <clears throat> the suspense, the supposition is that it was West of Jerusalem, because there are a number of possibilities which have been proposed from the time of the early church fathers on even up till today. So Emmaus is not known for certain, but it is fairly certain that it was west of Jerusalem. Now, the better text of the Greek has 60 stadia in that 13th verse. That is, uh, that's a matter of some debate, but... The majority reading and the accepted reading of the majority acceptance of that reading is 60 stadia, which is about, uh, seven miles. And so that's the reason that, uh, in the New American Standard in particular, he says it's about seven miles west of Jerusalem. Now my, my, the point I'm driving at here is that if it's west of Jerusalem, in what region does it lie? Let's suppose that the location on your map is fairly accurate. <clears throat> Obviously, the, ro- the disciples on the road to Emmaus came back to Jerusalem that night, so it couldn't have been much more than seven miles west of Jerusalem. If they were going to get back in the same day, uh, <clears throat> even seven miles would uh, be a bit of a hike. But nonetheless, in an in uh, age in which they're used to walking more quickly, perhaps that was uh, something that was... Have quite easily done it. If if it was ten miles away, as some have suggested, seventeen miles away, as some suggested, not likely that they would have been back on the same day, same evening. all right. All right. Well, that aside, uh, what region is Emmaus if the map is is locating it accurately? It is in the Western Judean Hills. Does that ring any bells? It is in the Judean hills. Who lived in the Judean hills? Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in the Judean hills. They came from the hill country of Judea. Now, it's not certain that they were directly west of Jerusalem. They could have been northwest. They could have been slightly Uh, More directly north, the Judean hills extend up the central part of the land of Israel. But nonetheless, if the road to Emmaus is west of Jerusalem, as it seems to be certain, it could have been in the Judean hills even as the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth was which gives us then a potential i put a question mark in front of the meta narrative gives us a potential meta narrative of the whole gospel namely the first 5 verses the verses 5 to 7 occur in the hill country of judea exact location unknown remember that in the two places in which the home of zechariah and elizabeth is named it doesn't say anything more specific than the hill country of judea doesn't give the exact location of the village or the town in which they lived. And then we move from their home region to the temple at Jerusalem in verses 8 to 9 of chapter 1. So notice the sequence. The hill country of Judea from which they arose and from which they came to Jerusalem to do their service in the temple. And then verses 8 and 9, they are in the temple in Jerusalem itself. Chapter 24, verse 13, the hill country of Judea. Once again, west of Jerusalem, Emmaus' exact location unknown, just as the the village of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the exact location is unknown. But the similarity is uh, once again duplicated, and we end the gospel in the temple at Jerusalem, even as we began the gospel in the temple at Jerusalem. So the sequence of the narrative of shifts goes in duplicate symmetry. From the hill country of Judea to the Temple in Jerusalem, from the hill country at the beginning, from the hill country of Judea to the Temple of Jerusalem at the end of the Gospel, (coughs) Luke has potentially placed a large meta narrative framework around his entire third gospel. Now, even if that is not persuasive to you, there is another pattern to note, and that's a meta-narrative of the infancy story. The first characters in the Gospel of Luke who are introduced to us are Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they are described in verses five to seven of the first chapter as an old man and an old woman devout and upright. The annunciation, which comes to them of the supernatural conception which will occur in the womb of Elizabeth is an indication of the breaking in of God's supernatural intervention in history once more as he had done in time past, particularly in the Old Testament era. Now, that begins the infancy narrative. An elderly man, an elderly woman, woman noted to be devout and upright and a supernatural event in the offing. Where does the infancy narrative end? Well, in chapter 2, verses 25 to 38, we have an old man and an old woman, Simeon and Anna, devout and faithful, and the supernatural advent, the supernatural child, is in their midst. Once again, I am suggesting that Luke, in using these parallels, is using duplication unto theological inclusion. That theological inclusion includes the witness of the faithful members of the old era, the old covenant, the former age. Faithful witnesses from outside of Jerusalem and faithful witnesses from inside Jerusalem. And you will notice that it is a man and a woman in both instances, male and female witnesses to the supernatural significance of what is occurring in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem. All right, those are suggestions about patterning. Uh, which are intriguing to consider, if not entirely persuasive, nonetheless interesting to observe. Now, let's look at the structure of the unit that we are looking at for this evening, verses 22 to 39. And the broader frame is 22 and 39. So, as you look at those two verses... Chapter 2, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 39. What pattern do you see reflected in the text? Very good. They were, <coughs> they brought Jesus up. The New American Standard reads they brought him up to Jerusalem in verse 22. And in verse 39, they returned From Jerusalem to Nazareth. As a footnote here, if you'll notice verse 39, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Why would Luke specify their own city of Nazareth? Because they had been living in Bethlehem for at least a month, as much as 40 days, potentially, and uh, had, uh, and that was not their own city. Their own city was Nazareth. They had come from Nazareth, as you know to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus and were now returning to their own city, which was not Bethlehem, but Nazareth, as as, uh, he specifies in a full uh, reflexive uh, inclusio. All right, so it's the action, the shift in action from being brought up to Jerusalem. Jesus comes to, to the temple for the first time and then returning to his hometown, which he had never visited yet at the end of that time in Jerusalem in verse 39. Large frame, then, of shift in narrative space at the beginning and end of this unit. Right now, looking down, drilling down into the unit, uh, the next interesting uh, uh, parallel is in verse 25 and verse 38. I provided the uh, Greek text or the Greek word that is duplicated, so just for the sake of uh, precision. uh, But uh, as you look at the English translation in verse 25 and again in verse 38, what do you see duplicated? Waiting. Waiting. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. New American Standard reads, looking for the redemption of Jerusalem in 38, looking for the consolation of Israel in 25. And the word looking is in the Greek there, prostakoumenes. It's the exact same. It's a a plural in verse 38. But But the term translated looking for is the accurate translation of the duplication. Now, following that pattern of looking for is an expression. It actually begins it in verse 25. And a man was, his name is Simeon, looking for the consolation of Israel. So, there is a phrase which introduces the individual of verse 25, which is very similar to a phrase which introduces the individual of verse 36. In the Greek, translated into the English, and a prophetess was. Notice the similarity. And a man was, verse 25, looking for. His name is Simeon. And a prophetess was, verse 36, her name is Anna, and she is also looking for, looking for redemption, looking for consolation, uh, redemption and consolation, redemption and the comfort, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, the consolation of Israel from Isaiah 40. Uh, <clears throat> this is what is being described in, uh, in <clears throat> uh, synonymous terms or uh, terms which are uh, elaborating upon the salvific event. All right, now the last thing to note is the eulognesen, which is the word for blessed in verse 28, and once again, blessed in verse 34. Notice how we have kind of framed downward. The larger frame around this whole unit that is the occurrence of the action inside the frame at Jerusalem, brought up to Jerusalem, going back from Jerusalem 2239. <clears throat> then the action which is behind the two characters that are, that are presented in this unit, namely Simeon and Anna, both of whom share the same outlook, the same hope, the same expectation. They're looking for the redemption, the consolation, the salvation, of Israel verses 25 and 28 now to the most shall we say proximate frame the blessing which is granted in one case in verse 28 and the blessing which is granted in the other case in verse 34 what who is the object of the blessing in verse 28 God himself is blessed Simeon blesses God. How do you bless God? Well, the psalmist does, doesn't he? Bless the Lord over my soul and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. So how do we bless God's name? He certainly isn't in any need of blessing. You can't add anything to him. He is absolutely, perfectly blessed. So what does it mean to bless the Lord? To declare it. To declare him to be blessed. So when the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, he's declaring that the Lord is blessed. This is what Simeon is doing here. He's blessing God. He's declaring him to be blessed for the event which is in front of him, for the child which who is in front of him. But in verse 34, what does he do? It's the same Greek word, but the object... Not God. Mary Mary and Joseph. He blessed them. Mary and Joseph are blessed. I think it's likely Mary and Joseph are the object here because you'll notice verse 33. His father and mother were amazed at this thing. So the antecedent of the pronoun them in verse 34 would be Mary his father and mother, Mary and Joseph, in verse 33. Not the child, per se. Interesting that he doesn't bless the child, per se. Or at least the text suggests that it's Mary and Joseph who are receiving the blessing in verse 34. All right. Now, in blessing them, of course, he is asking God to make them blessed. He is asking God to bestow his blessing. He is giving, in a way, a benediction to Mary and Joseph. And he's doing this because of the significance of the child whom he has just cradled in his arms. Now, this is the last of Luke's Christmas hymns. There are four of them, and the, the, this of, of chapter 12. 2 verse 29 is the so-called Nunc Dimittis. Each of the hymns has a Latin title coming from the translation in the Latin edition of the Bible, the Vulgate, going back to the 5th century and actually a little bit before. The Nunc Dimittis, which in Latin literally means, now you let depart. Now you let depart. Nunc, now, dimittis, demit, or depart, or go away, now you let depart. And it is the title of a famous or series of famous hymns in the uh, Advent liturgy, particularly of the uh, liturgical style churches. Uh, There aren't many uh, popular carol hymns. Uh, nunc dimittis in uh, in hymn books, but the Nunc dimittis is sung routinely in the Christmas uh, chorals, particularly in English cathedrals, King's College, etc. And there is a very sweet one by George Dyson, uh, a composer with whom I was not familiar until I located this Nunc dimittis. but a composer that was of some note. Uh, during the 20th century, particularly with respect to British uh, liturgical music. And there is a, a short Nunc uh sung by a choir in that YouTube uh, link that's there on your handout so that you can hear it if you wish, uh, uh, if, if you're not aware of the very sweet sound of the English boy choir's uh and children's choirs uh please uh you have a treat by listening to this and to uh many more of them uh, the great carols and uh, and hymns of the christmas season from the church of england are actually magnificent to hear particularly those of uh, uh, t- those boy choir voices it's just very sweet okay uh, <clears throat> Now we want to look at the characterization of Simeon by means of his Nunc Dimittis hymn. The music of Christmas did not originate with Antonio Vivaldi's Gloria or Johann Sebastian Bach's Magnificat or George Friedrich Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. Music of Christmas originated with God Himself. I am suggesting that that is a pleasant thought. That the music of Christmas originated with God Himself is a pleasant thought. God Himself, the originator of music, yes, even the sweet Christmas music which hymns the advent of His beloved Son. The music of Christmas first came from heaven. Vivaldi, Bach, Handel, they are but faint imitators, straining to tune their choruses to the tones of the celestial spheres. Heaven's sun came down at Christmas, and heaven's deep organ wove a symphony of hymns to sound forth his birth. Luke's gospel contains these hymns, these Advent hymns, these hymns proclaiming the coming incarnation of the Son of the Most High, God of God, Light of Light, Very God of Very God, as we recite in the Nicene Creed. Luke's infancy narratives contain these hymns, these Advent hymns, these hymns proclaiming the advent of God's uncreated birth. There are four Advent hymns in Luke 1 and 2, four hymns sung by the inspiration of heaven's Holy Spirit. First, the Magnificat, the Virgin Mary's song in which she magnifies the Lord for the miraculous conception wrought in her, and the wondrous child carried by her. My soul doth magnify the Lord. Second, the Benedictus, the song of Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, whose loosened tongue is employed prophetically. Salvation for us, salvation from our enemies, salvation by the forgiveness of sins, Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Third, the Gloria, the choir of angels serenading the frightened shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem, a hymn from heaven's own angelic symphony, Gloria in excelsis, glory to God in the highest. And finally, the Nunc Dimittis, Simeon's song, a hymn inspired by heaven's great spirit, a song of departure, a song of departure and arrival with heaven's visitation cradled in his longing arms. Nunc dimittis, now your servant may depart in peace, O Lord. Our hymn singing at Christmas time is our faint imitation of heaven's very own advent choruses. So sing, sing with choirs of angels, sing with yearning, longing hearts, sing with wonder and amazement, sing with the blessed fathers and mothers of old, sing at heaven's own very invitation, sing the birth of God's Son, this gift, this grace gift who brings you salvation. And when you hear Vivaldi's glorious Gloria, when you are trumpeted into Bach's magnificent Magnificat, when you are drawn to your feet by Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, know that your ears, your hearts, your tongues are repeating the sounding joy that heaven itself inaugurated. God himself commissioned when he conducted heaven and earth in songs of praise for the birth of his infant son. We will not shrink back from voicing the carols of Christmas. God's Holy Spirit himself sang before us. We but follow the glorious, the magnificent, the blessed paradigm of our comforter, our paraclete, our helper. The profusion of song and hymn in Luke's infancy gospel is not incidental. If there is an abundance of singing in Luke 1 and 2, surely something remarkable is afoot. I believe that the four songs of Luke's opening chapters are a poetic marker of a mega shift, a paradigm shift, a turning point of history. Angels sang, indeed sang creation's birth, and angels sing again. Surely something remarkable is afoot. A new creation. When Israel stood dry shod across the three sea, Moses and all Israel sang with him in Exodus 15, In thy loving kindness, Lord, thou hast led thy people whom thou hast redeemed. The act of redeeming grace of the Old Testament from the Exodus out of Egypt and Israel sings in Exodus 15. Luke's infancy hymns are songs of redemption. Surely something remarkable is afoot. A new Exodus? And what are the prophets? Did they not sing? Take the prophet Hosea, for instance. He prophesies a wedding song for the beloved of the Lord. Behold, says the Lord, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak to her heart, and she will sing. She will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, Hosea chapter 2. When the Lord's covenant bride will return to the wilderness... When the Lord's covenant spouse will return to the land in between, when the Lord's covenant bride will return to the land of her espousals, she will sing. She will sing as she sang on her exodus from Egypt. Surely, Hosea projects something remarkable is afoot. A new wedding song. First creation song, new creation song. Old Exodus Chorus, New Exodus Chorus. Former wedding song for the pilgrim bride. Latter wedding song for the bride who sojourns in the end of the age. The songs of Luke's gospel are poignant with the drama of redemptive history come to its hymnic climax. Mary's Luke and him. Mary's Magnificat says something remarkable is afoot. The Lord has done mighty deeds in remembrance of his mercy to our fathers. Zacharias's Luke hymn says something remarkable is afoot. The Lord has visited his people because of his tender mercy with which the day spring from on high shall visit us. The angels' Luke hymn says something remarkable is afoot. Glory to God and on earth peace Luke's infancy hymns are hymns of fulfillment. God's promises are being accomplished in this child, Jesus. Creation promises now in Him a new creation. Covenant promises now in Him a new covenant. Exodus promises now in him a new Exodus. Davidic promises now in him a new David. Wedding promises now in him a heavenly wedding banquet is prepared. The imagery here is profuse, and it cannot be exhausted even by my paltry rhetoric. It is profound in its drama, even as it is exalted in its hymnody. It lifts the heart to heaven's choir. The remarkable thing which is afoot, according to Luke's infancy hymns, is that God's Son has come to incarnate not only human flesh, God's Son has come to incarnate the promises. And all heaven sings. In his infant to adult life, All the promises of the former age are lived, embodied, incarnated. The incarnation of the person of God's son is the incarnation of the history of God's promises. And this child's accomplishment of those promises means that they are once and for all accomplished for us. For us, he has done this. The promises of God are yea and amen in this child, And they are yea and amen in us who belong to this child. Luke is writing to us in songs, songs of the fulfillment of God's promises through his infant son, Jesus Christ, so that as you sing with Mary's Magnificat, as you sing with Zacharias' Benedictus, as you sing with the angels' Gloria, you sing that that remarkable shift from promise to fulfillment, belongs to you. It belongs to you in this child, Christ Jesus. Mary's words are your song. Zacharias's words are your song. The angel's words are your song. In Christ, you now sing the hymns of your infant Lord and God. But what of Simeon? What of Simeon and his song? Patient, long-suffering Simeon, what of Simeon's nunc dimittis? He sings his song 40 days after the birth of the child he holds in his arms. Jesus is nearly six weeks old when he is brought to the temple by his devout parents, his devout and poor Parents, Devout because Mary and Joseph perform the requirements of the ceremonial law, Luke lays great emphasis upon the obedience of the parents of Jesus by emphasizing no less than three times in verses 22 to 24 of this pericope that they act in accordance with the law of the Lord. But these upright parents... Are poor. They are poor as with so many others in Luke's gospel. The main characters in the gospel of Luke are not the rich and famous. They are the lowly and insignificant, often poor. Joseph and Mary can afford only a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Poor and devout, Joseph and Mary meet aged and devout, Simeon in the temple courts. Or is that merely a coincidence? An accident? Oh, you're not reading the text. Three times Luke tells us the Holy Spirit was upon aged and devout Simeon. How profoundly does Luke foreshadow for us in the work of the Holy Spirit upon Simeon the descent of the Holy Spirit in the second volume of his record of the gospel, namely the Holy Spirit outpouring at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It is the Holy Spirit who overshadows the Virgin Mary in that miraculous conception. It is the Holy Spirit who fills Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and causes her to bless the fruit of Mary's womb. It is the Holy Spirit who prophesies through Zechariah. It is in the Spirit that Simeon meets the child and his parents. It is the Spirit. It is the Spirit. It is the Spirit. Luke is the Gospel of the Spirit. Old Simeon. Newborn child. Aged Simeon. Forty day old child. Simeon whose life is nearing its end. The child Jesus whose young life is just beginning. Last days of the old patriarch, first days of the young infant. There is vivid contrast, vivid contrast between old and new. No, not just the contrast between the gray hair and the babe. Something remarkable is afoot. Aged Simeon waits. Aged Simeon waits to die. Aged Simeon waits to embrace a newborn child before he steps aside. He holds the new, clutches him to his breast, recites his song, returns him to his parents and disappears. Do you see that in verse 35? Simeon disappears. The old patriarch steps down from the stage, aged Simeon, full of the spirit, disappears and leaves the newborn babe in the spotlight. The old is gone. It has been superseded, it has been transcended by the new. Do you see it? The rest of Luke's gospel is about the baby become a man. The rest of Luke's drama is about the new. Jesus takes the spotlight from Simeon and from Mary and from Joseph and from the shepherds and from Zechariah and from Elizabeth. Jesus takes the spotlight and turns it on himself because he is the remarkably new thing God has done for the salvation of his people. The newborn child is the center of the story. Luke's story is about the child Jesus. It is not about aged Simeon. The child is the consolation of Israel. The child is the Lord's Messiah. The child is the one in whom our eyes behold salvation. The child is the light and the glory. Simeon takes the child and confesses, Let me go, O Lord. O Lord, let this child remain. Dear Lord, my eyes have fulfilled their destiny. Close my eyes, O Lord. Let my eyes shut in peace. For my eyes have beheld your gift My eyes have possessed your promised Savior. My eyes, my eyes, O Lord, can become dark. For I have seen your light. I have beheld the glory of the Lord. Close my eyes in death's peace. And did you notice... In this remarkable transition from the old to the new, did you notice how passive, how passive and silent is the new in the presence of the old. The child Jesus is brought to the temple. He is taken in Simeon's arms. He passively submits to the law in fulfillment of all the former era required. What is done to him is done according to the custom of the law, and Jesus submits. Jesus passively submits. What is spoken of him is spoken by figures who represent the best of the Old Testament era, the best Of the law and the prophets. Mary, Zechariah, angels, Simeon, Emma, Anna, they speak. He is silent. But the law and the prophets portend is directed to this child, this passive, silent child. So that when this child does speak, his words and deeds will fulfill the law and the prophets. And is this not exactly what Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that Jesus taught his disciples on the road to Emmaus how he was to fulfill all the things which were written of him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the writings. The infancy narratives of Luke's gospel are replete with the end of the law and the prophets. Their final appearance is to give way to the fullness himself. Jesus, not Simeon. Jesus, not the shepherds. Jesus, not Zechariah, Elizabeth. Jesus, not Mary. The new silently accepts the witness of the law and the prophets and then bursts forth in a torrent of word and deed revelation demonstrating the passing away of the old. Like Simeon, the Old Testament economy passes away, passes away in fulfillment. Farewell, says Simeon. Farewell, says the former era. In peace, farewell. The Old Testament economy, as Simeon, is dismissed in peace. The child, this child is all the light and glory of the law and the prophets. This child is everything longed for by the law and the prophets. Simeon has seen the light and the glory and Simeon is content. Content to leave the stage. Content to die. Content to disappear. Because the child Jesus has come. All things have become new. Even for righteous and devout Simeon. Everything has changed, even for righteous and devout Simeon. Let your servant now depart in peace, O Lord. Remarkable is the change in Simeon's song regarding the objects of salvation. In the Nunc Dimittis, for the first time in Luke's infancy hymns, we learn that salvation will include the Gentiles. Of all people, the Gentiles, the last Advent hymn of Luke's gospel invokes the saving blessing of God at last upon the Gentiles, foreshadowing the second volume of Luke's inspired writing in which the apostles bear the glad tidings of Jesus to Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece And Rome, Simeon announces the remarkable new thing that is afoot. Koreans, Filipinos, Chinese, Hispanic, Native American, Afro-American, Caucasian, even Scotch-Irish. The nations will come to the light and behold the glory, the glory of the Lord, his son, our Redeemer. Our from out of the nations, our, we Gentiles. Our Redeemer. Simeon beholds the Messiah. Simeon holds the Messiah. What a marvelous change. What every longing Hebrew heart desired, Simeon cradles in his arms. Simeon looks for the consolation of Israel. He beholds the consolation of Israel. He holds the salvation of the Lord in his arms. Indeed, what a wondrous change. To embrace the Christ, to possess the light and the glory, to clasp the redemption of Israel. Bless the Lord indeed, O my soul. Simeon beholds the revelation to the Gentiles Simeon holds the salvation of the nations. Simeon clutches to his heart the Savior of the world. Alleluia! What a wondrous change has come. These hymns are the signal of an altogether new thing in the history of redemption. But our text contains more than Simeon's song. Simeon's song is followed by Simeon's oracle. This child is a sign to be opposed. The Latin text there reads, Contradico. This child will endure contradiction. And a sword, a piercing sword, will accompany this child. What ironic juxtaposition. What ironic juxtaposition. Simeon's sweet benediction immediately followed by an ominous contradiction. Not mere opposition, but opposition which carries with it the image of the instrument of death. As if this piercing sword will sever life in death. This child's life overshadowed by death. Strange, strange juxtaposition. A dying Simeon prepares to surrender his life. An infant child takes up his newborn life and yet the dying patriarch draws the child within his own circle. He draws the child within his own circle as he enfolds the child in his dying arms. There is life in Simeon's song, but ironically there is death in Simeon's oracle. Look at the irony. Jesus drawn to the loving heart of Simeon, but drawn into the death aura that hovers over Simeon. Sublime Dutch painter Rembrandt has a portrait entitled The Holy Family. In the scene which he paints, there is a quiet domestic panorama of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. The happy advent of the child is portrayed in the peaceful contentment of the family's surrounding. But as we look more closely, At the picture, you notice Joseph at work at his carpenter's bench. And the piece of wood that he is carving resembles a cross. Rembrandt cannot portray the birth of the Christ child without portending his death. So, too, Simeon's psalm. It is followed by his foreboding prophecy. Simeon's oracular remarks like Rembrandt's Joseph carving remind us of Calvary because Christmas is inevitably followed by Good Friday. We know the rest of the story as Simeon did not. Righteous and devout Simeon is still an Old Testament figure, still peering behind that veil that separates the full disclosure of God's remarkable plan of salvation from its promises, its types, its shadows, its anticipations, hides it from its fullness. For as wonderful as Simeon's song is, it is still short. It is still short of a resurrection. As remarkable a thing as Simeon perceived was afoot, you and I have perceived a more remarkable thing. The full story of this child is his undeserved death. Surely the contradiction of sinners. And his glorious resurrection, surely the justification of believing sinners. We know, we know that Christmas is followed by Easter. Simeon did not. Simeon did not. May I bring you once again to the temple, to aged Simeon in the spirit, laying his eyes upon Jesus for the first and last time, and taking Jesus in his arms, sings a song of fulfillment, and may I invite you to embrace this child as the Christ the long-expected Messiah, may I urge you, may I beg you to cradle him in your dying arms as your salvation, the sweet, everlasting consolation of your soul. May I remind you that there is no peace, no peace in life or in death except in and through this child, the Savior of sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. And as you cuddle him by faith through grace, as you sing with Simeon, may I assure you that this child holds you. This child holds you in his living arms. And as you cuddle him by faith through grace, as you sing with Simeon, may I assure you that this child sings a song over you. That this child sings heaven's song of life eternal. Because this Christmas child is at the same time the Easter child. All heaven sings at the incarnation of of the Son of God, our Savior. And all heaven sings at the resurrection of the Son of God, our Savior. And so you sing with Simeon and the angels and Zechariah and Mary and the elect from Israel and the Gentiles Magnificat Benedictus Gloria in Excelsis Nunc dimittis, Alleluia, Amen. Sing with Luke the songs of your redemption. All right, we'll take a break and come back to consider one other characterization paradigm. Characterization of the other character in this section, namely Anna. Remarkable figure, as I trust you will appreciate when I'm done. Now, before I begin, I want to note my special indebtedness to Dr. Norman Shepard for an article that he wrote on Anna in the Presbyterian Guardian, published in December of 1978. That remarkable article is still available online in the archive of the Presbyterian Guardian online. How do we characterize Anna as Luke presents her? We begin with her name. Her name in Hebrew would be Hannah. Yes, like the Old Testament Hannah, a name which in Hebrew means grace or favor. Hannah of our story, a recipient of the grace of God. Hannah of our story, favored by the Lord. As the other women in these infancy narratives have been favored by the Lord, graciously dealt with, graciously changed, Mary, Elizabeth, and now Anna. You notice her father is named. She is the daughter of Phanuel, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Peniel. I trust that that rings a bell with you. Peniel, where Jacob in Genesis 32 wrestled with the angel of the Lord, who was God himself in pre-incarnate form, the son of God in pre-incarnate form. And he says, I have seen God face to face. Peniel, or Panuel, face of God. And Anna seeks God's face and finds that she, too, has been graced with the face of God. The final name that is in this description of her biography, actually her family patrimony, final name is that she's a daughter of the tribe of Asher. Now, the tribe of Asher is one of the sons of Jacob to Rachel's maid Bilhah in Genesis 30, verse 13. When Rachel was barren, or at least had not had any children, And in order to have a child, she offered her handmaid to Jacob. And Bilhah conceived and delivered Asher, whom Rachel named. Happy am I, Asher, happy. Anna is from the Asherite line of Jacob, And she is certainly happy in our pericope here. Surely the grace of God has favored his people in this child and Anna recognizes it. Surely the very face of God is present in the face of this child and Anna recognizes it. She is, after all, a prophetess. Surely the people of God receiving this child are happy in Jesus, as Anna is happy in Jesus the Christ. But how is it that a member of of the obscure tribe of Asher, survives to the birth of Christ. The tribe of Asher, a tribe of the northern kingdom, a tribe of that rebellious nation that split ten tribes from twelve under Jeroboam, the first at the death of Solomon in 940 BC, a tribe which was part of a nation destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC, carried off into captivity and supposedly lost in the amalgamation of the Mesopotamian populations, the ten lost tribes of Israel, including Asher. How does a member of the tribe of Asher survive to the advent of Jesus? Are there remnant Asherites who come back with a remnant of Judah in Cyrus' decree of 539? Is that how an Asherite comes back to Judah? Or is it explained some other way that indeed... Most of the members of the ten tribes of Israel were carried off into captivity, but some stragglers were left behind. And in fact, in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 11, we read of members from the tribe of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Asher, invited to Jerusalem to celebrate The Passover in the days of Hezekiah, perhaps more than a quarter of a century after the destruction of the northern kingdom, following Hezekiah's purification of the temple, and the most magnificent celebration of the Passover since the days of Moses. And the invitation to those Ephraimites, Manassites, and Asherites goes up north, and they come to Jerusalem. Asherites who have survived the captivity and destruction of Samaria and Israel. Asherites who respond to the open invitation to come to Jerusalem, to Solomon's temple, to the house of the Lord, and take the Passover Along with us, Seth, Hezekiah, king of Judah. However we resolve this interesting conundrum, Anna has a history in terms of her father's name, in terms of her tribal name, In terms of her personal name, she has a history which ties her to the history of redemption. It is not coincidental. It is not coincidental that she comes on the heels of Simeon's prophecy. No, 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 no. She is exegetical of Simeon's prophecy. She is standing there at the moment when he utters his prophecy and her head is nodding assent with every phrase he utters. For she has been looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She has been looking for the consolation of Israel. She has been longing for the salvation of the people of God. She has been longing for 84 years. And as she sees that child taken and cradled in the arms of Simeon, she rejoices with him in the child That he holds. Here, here is the salvation of Jerusalem. Here, here is the redemption of Israel. Here, in those arms is the consolation of the people of God. You see, Luke, has stylized her life. You notice how remarkably he's done that? How succinctly he has done it? He stylized her life. She was married. Well, that means there was a time when she wasn't married. There was a premarital time for her when she was a single woman. And then she was married for seven years and she was a... Married woman. And after seven years of marriage, her husband died and she was a widow woman. Single woman, married woman, widow woman. The paradigm of the life of many women, is it not? But at every stage of that life, she comes to the temple. She comes to the temple praying and fasting, longing, longing as Simeon longs to see the Lord's Christ, to lay her eyes upon the Redeemer of her soul and the soul of her believing people. She has set her face toward the face of God. She has set her heart to the promises of God's redemption. She has set her life to the devotion of the long-expected Jesus. And happily, she sees the face of this child as the face of God. And wonderfully, graciously favored, she rejoices in the face of this child, the life of this child, the gift of this child. And then, did you notice? She speaks, only we don't know what she says. We know what Simeon says. Do you see these contrasts? You see this fascinating literary and theological contrast that Luke weaves into this narrative. Simeon speaks, and we hear his words. Anna speaks, but she's silent. Well, we don't hear her words. Is it because she's the alter ego of Simeon? Is it because that she is the reflective mirror of Simeon? Yes, it is in part. Or is it because she is so overwhelmed in her Asher? quality, her happiness quality. She is so overwhelmed that all she can do is give thanks and tell about what has come into her presence. And then and then she disappears from the narrative just as her alter ego, Simeon, disappears from the narrative. She leaves the story. Having seen the Redeemer of Jerusalem, she leaves the stage. Because her characterization is unto The Christologization of her experience, namely, Christ is the center of her focus. These two aged witnesses, was it not the requirement of the law that everything be established by two or three witnesses? Is that not the requirement of the law? And here we have a male witness and a female witness, aged, old, about to die, ready to die on the brink of death, summing up their whole life in one scene. One small narrative which is so full and rich that not Dr. Shepard's rhetoric, nor my oratory, could ever exhaust it. The profundity of Luke's succinct biography. But more wonderfully, the profundity of this 84-year-old woman, Constantly, steadfastly, daily, longing to see the redemption, the redeemer, the ransomer, the freer of Jerusalem's bondage. Oh, not the bondage to the Roman. Iron Standard, SPQR. No, 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 no. Bondage of that benighted and hard-hearted generation of scribes and Pharisees who did not even believe, Sadducees, who did not even believe in life beyond death. Bondage of Jerusalem. The dying consolation of Israel is freedom from death itself. Simeon, on the brink of death, holds in his arms freedom from death. Anna, at 84 years old, on the brink of death, sees before her Life and not death. Redemption of Israel and Jerusalem has come. Simeon and Anna, two witnesses to its advent, to its presence, to the face of God in this child, to the grace of God in this child, to the happiness which comes from God in and through this child the work of the Holy Spirit in this child and through this child. Simeon and Anna, two witnesses to establish the truth of who this child is outside the circle of Bethlehem, outside the circle of Mary and Joseph, outside the circle of even the angels. Now the circle expanding into Israel proper, into Jerusalem proper, into Judaism proper, and beyond. Doesn't Simeon say so? A light to the Gentiles. The stage is being set incrementally by Luke in this gospel to draw you out to the wonderful expansion of the plan of redemption to fold in people from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. Here is its first prophecy. Here is its first projection. The book of Acts will be profuse prophecy and projection of it. You stand in the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so we leave this bracketed, well-framed, well-tightly held together pericope of Luke chapter 2, we leave it with a great appreciation, a great delight, a great affection for an old man and an old woman who longed to see baby Jesus and knew that he was their savior. That's your story. And that's the reason Luke wrote it, so that his audience would understand that it was their story too. Any questions? Yes. You were about the that they were of, right? Yes, uh, I, I was talking about the Gentile circle, that it, it, <clears throat> they are inside the circle of the temple in Jerusalem, that is, Simeon and Anna. And we're seeing. Luke incrementally expand the circles of exposure to Jesus. So he's exposed to the family circle in Bethlehem. He's exposed to the temple circle in these two pericopes. He's going to be expanding himself into Gentile territory, even in his own ministry in Luke's gospel. And then the book of Acts is going to take that that expansion into the world. Does their age place them in a different circle? or is No, I'm, I'm using this in an additional circle. Oh, uh, well, there's certainly no nothing wrong with it, considering the fact that they are aged people, and, and aged people are saved as well by the grace of, re- of the redemption of Christ. Yes. Okay. No, okay. <laughs> what am I missing? Okay. Scott.
1: Maybe I misunderstood you. About earlier last hour when we were talking about uh, what Simeon prophesied, I thought you said that he, he foresaw the death of Christ but not the resurrection. Um, and, and, and I'm just wondering if you think there's any possibility that in verse 32, and for the glory of People Israel might suggest the resurrection because it looks to future glory and I'm wondering how, you, how would you interpret the, the, the rising that goes in verse 34 that falls the rising the rising just in a general sense or the, that may have
0: nothing to do with it? I, don't, I don't think I think it's a general sense I don't think a yep. specific resur, resurrectory sense uh, no I'm a little agnostic there for the reasons I indicated I, I think his focus falls upon the Christ that's before him without knowing the full significance of the career of that Christ. Okay, so, so he
1: sees a glory that's going to go beyond. He sees an eschatological
0: glory. Yeah, this is the glory of, of revealing redemption to the Gentiles, which is the Isaiah 9, the people that dwelt in darkness have seen a great light, etc., which... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, he will repeat in the fourth chapter, not that, that quotation. In the fourth chapter or the third chapter? Yes, it's the fourth chapter. You're
1: just saying that he, doesn't, he, he sees through glass darkly. He doesn't
0: clearly see the distinction between death and resurrection. I don't think so. He, he sees this clearly of Savior. Okay? David.
1: So I have kind a of driving need to crawl out to the end of the again. Um, your uh, remarks about declarative, what's the Lord all my soul. Um, I would think of more than just declaration. You take a tuning fork and strike it, you have a tuning fork in the same frequency, it will also resonate. And it's the very wrong to cry out. of the Savior,
0: I like, I like your analogy, and I, I heartily agree with you. Uh, the, the resonance of the soul uh, in blessing the Lord is, uh, I can say it's a, a form of declaration, but if, if, uh, if, if you want it to add to the declaration, that's fine with me. It's a good image. Let's go to prayer. Lord, we are favored by your grace because of the child who is your son. We are redeemed and consoled because of the child who is your son. We have seen the glory of the age to come in this child who is your son we, who are Gentiles of the end of the age, delight in Simeon and Anna's characterization, declaration, revelation in this part of Luke's gospel. We bless you for them as we bless you because of them, for you revealed yourself and worked by your spirit in their hearts and lives, through their mouths and actions. Thank you. Thank you for their story, which is an invitation to us to praise you, thank you, bless you for the redemption of your people. In the name of the Redeemer, Jesus, the child of Bethlehem, and the child in the temple in Jerusalem. Amen.